This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Putin! Russians are losing ground in Ukraine, so he's making threats. This time a nuclear threat. In fact, this past week, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization, a move that his defense minister said would call up roughly 300,000 reservists. You know what that means? That means that the Russian military is having a difficult time in Ukraine. So we're going to talk about that because Putin is talking about, well, he's making nuclear threats. Let me just play what he said. If the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will, without question, use all the means at our disposal to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. So Putin accused the West of nuclear blackmail. And he made explicit threats about the potential for deploying Moscow's nuclear stockpile. He said, those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the weather vane can turn and point toward them. Joe Serencioni is a national security expert, and he joins us now to discuss the situation in Ukraine and how it has deteriorated for Russia and what Putin's statement really means for the Biden administration. Joe, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, UN General Assembly this past week, uh, just as Vladimir Putin and Russia loses ground in Ukraine, and Putin makes some pretty alarming threats about the possibility of using nuclear weapons. Does it show that he is desperate? I believe it shows that he is losing the war and he knows he's losing the war. Uh, he's been operating under the idea that a Russian victory was inevitable, that he had the superior forces in numbers and materiel. He had the superior resources to sustain this occupation of uh, independent and democratic Ukraine. And the uh, recent Ukrainian counteroffense, both in the south around the, the city of Hershan, and then to their surprise in the north around the city of Kharkiv, has sh has shaken those assumptions, both for the, the the military command, the support network that Putin has in Russia, and now for Putin himself. That's why he's declared a partial mobilization. That's why you hear him rattling the nuclear saber again. He knows he's losing. He's concerned, perhaps, about whether his forces can actually hold their current positions or whether Ukraine will continue in advance. And he's trying to scare Ukraine to scare the West into halting any offensive actions by threatening to escalate to nuclear weapons. Why is Russia 
seemingly with well it, it's it's a fact it has a more powerful military than you, the ukrainians so why are or why is putin losing right now well before the war most considered russia the second most powerful military in the world as it turns out it's not even uh, the second most powerful military in Ukraine. It, it, it's it's losing for a number of reasons. One, the war has exposed the effects of corruption on the military procurement system. A lot of the equipment isn't working. A lot of the, the ammunition they've been getting has proved to be defective. It shows the corruption in the military commands stru- structure. Many of the generals have proved to be completely inept as well as the strategy of the Russian force, which is very top-down, very controlled, when modern warfare requires much more initiative uh, on the battlefield, from battlefield com- commanders. And finally, more than anything else, it really shows the difference between an invading force and a, and a force defending their country from invasion. The Ukrainians have the benefit of superior morale, superior de- desire. They know what they're fighting for. They see what happens when towns are occupied um, by by the Russian forces. And as it turns out, it looks like they have superior uh, strategic leaders, both in, in President Zelensky and in the Ukrainian military itself. And these military leaders have been training for over a decade now, since the initial invasion in 2014, about how to respond to a further invasion. So they were ready. They had plans. And finally, here's the last piece. They're benefiting greatly from the Western aid that has flowed into Ukraine, particularly the long-range weapons like drones, like HIMARS, like the M777 artillery pieces that are giving the Ukrainians the ability to hit deep behind Russian lines, disrupt their transportation, their supplies, their logistics. Meanwhile, there appears to be growing unrest in Russia. Well, that unrest is going to grow. Putin announced a partial mobilization, something that his right-wing nationalist critics have been urging him to do, even declare full mobilization, meaning full conscription of the Russian male population. He's decided to go for a partial mobilization. He wants to conscript 300,000 Russians and get them to the front line. This is really going to exacerbate the, the, the tensions within Russian society. You remember the protests that, sp- that sprung up almost immediately when he declared the war. They were squelched, but some 17,000 people were arrested. But then the population was lulled into complacency. They thought that Russia had this uh, military operation under control. They expected an eventual uh, uh, victory. Their sons and daughters weren't there. This was a largely volunteer force. But now that's shifting. Now Russians are going to be asked to send their sons to the front line for a war they didn't think they were even going to be fighting. They thought this was a special military operation. So yes, I expect this to to cause great dislocations in the Russian population. I expect resistance to this war to grow and the unease of the oligarchs who surround and support Putin to grow as well. Expect more fissures in the Russian leadership. Uh, Let's talk about some of the unrest in Iran. First, though, let's listen to this interview from 60 Minutes and Leslie Stahl. Can we start with the negotiations on the nuclear deal? Do you want to have that deal renewed? Because, you know, there are some American officials who are beginning to think that you don't. If it's a good deal and fair deal, we would be serious about reaching an agreement. It needs to be lasting. There needs to be guarantees. If there were a guarantee, then the Americans could not withdraw from the deal. You see, the Americans broke their promises. They did it unilaterally. They said that, I am out of the deal. Now making promises is becoming meaningless. We cannot trust the Americans because of the behavior that we've already seen from them. That is why if there is no guarantee, there is no trust. All right. So, Joe, based on what you heard in the interview and and saw in that 60 Minutes report, what are your thoughts? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, uh, 
I and most analysts on the Iranian situation were felt confident that we were just about to conclude a deal to restore the JCPOA, the Joint uh, Plan of Action that had constrained Iran's program, had put it in a box, surrounded it with cameras and inspectors, and it basically prevented Iran from getting a bomb for a good uh, 10, 15, even 20 years. When Donald Trump left that agreement, he opened the door. And so now Iran was building its forces back up. We thought we were on the verge of shrinking that program back down. But now President Raisi has raised a last minute demand. And he expressed that in his interview with uh, Leslie Stahl. He's demanding a guarantee that the U.S. won't leave the deal, a guarantee that it is impossible for President Biden to give. He cannot assure another country that if President Trump should be reelected, that the U.S. won't pull out of the deal again. It's impossible. And we've discussed this with the Iranians. And we thought we had reached an accommodation on this. But it appears at the very last minute, Raisi is raising this demand. If he maintains this demand for a guarantee, a guarantee it's impossible for us to give, then the deal is dead. Uh, we'll know in the next couple of weeks if this is a, a last-ditch effort to extract more concessions or if he seriously intends to kill the deal. It's greatly disappointing to all of us who've been hoping that we were inches away from solving this problem. Is this an indication that the American side wants this deal too badly. Um, What do you think? No, I don't think so. In fact, (laughs) the Biden administration went out of their way to demonstrate they were not in a rush. In fact, it was kind of a mistake. Instead of rejoining the deal on the first or second day of the administration, as many of us has thought they would, the way, for example, they rejoined the Paris Climate Accord Agreement uh, on the day President Biden was inaugurated, another deal that Donald Trump had pulled out of. Instead of that, they delayed it and delayed it and talked about getting a longer and stronger deal. They didn't lift any of the sanctions that Trump had imposed on Iran in an effort to break them or bend them to his will, an effort that failed. And they waited for three months before restarting negotiations. That proved to be a deadly mistake because the reformist, the more flexible government that was in place then, the government of President Rouhani, was ready to conclude a deal. But the U.S., in trying to show that they weren't in a rush in hopes that that would give them more negotiating flexibility, in fact, didn't ran out of time. While Rouhani's presidential term ran out in June, there were new elections. They elected, Iran elected this hardliner Raisi, and he himself then showed that he was not in a rush by delaying also for five months before rejoining the, the, the negotiations. No, I don't think the U.S. has shown it's been too eager. If a- anything, it didn't move fast enough, and now we're paying the price for it. What we're seeing across the country uh, of Iran are these protests after the death last week of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was arrested in Tehran by the morality police. Uh, this is a unit of the police force that enforces strict dress codes for women. So she died in custody, and there have been protests across the country, the kinds of protests that you don't often see in Iran. What is happening domestically there? Right. These protests show how fragile the, the, the rule of the, uh, the mullahs actually is. You know, they, they have a very strong police state. They, they, it, this is not a democracy. There are elections, but they're tightly controlled, limitations on who can run, for example. And, and supreme power lies in this supreme religious leader, uh, right? Hamenei. And to enforce their rule, they have these morality police who will go around and will harass but mostly women, for not dressing properly, for not having a scarf, a hajib that covers their head fully the way they're supposed to. Well, I've been to Tehran. I've seen the way women uh, dress and how they they push it as far as they can, how the closer you get to universities, the more hair you see on women's heads, the tighter the, the, the black clothing that they're required to wear is, for example. And what you're seeing now is this, this outburst of, of outrage at these restrictions triggered by the tragic death and, and probably torture of Masha Amini. 
uh, it's really stunning to see these videos, to see dozens, even hundreds of of women burning their headscarves, taking their their head clothes, their head coverings off in public, subjecting themselves to possible arrest and harassment. It, It shows that what the people of Iran want is a much is a much different government than the one they have. But how long have we been saying that, Joe? We've been saying that now for, for decades here in this country. Right. So you see these protests flare up and get pushed back, flare up and get pushed back. I, I would assess that the, the forces of, of democracy in Iran are not strong enough to overthrow the, the government. Uh, and that, and their effort to keep them weak is part of what's behind what we were talking about er- earlier, the Iran deal. Does the supreme leader, does President uh, Raisi really want an Iran deal? Because if you got that deal, it really opens up again the country for Western investment, Western involvement, Western companies coming in, perhaps a, 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 an end to the diplomatic isolation of Iran. In other words, all the kinds of things that give Western democratic uh, forces vectors into Iranian society. And there is a big faction of the government, mainly in the Revolutionary Guard, who doesn't want that, who's against the nuclear deal, who wants to keep the country tightly controlled, isolated, so they can maintain these medieval practices. So right now, the democratic forces are are weak. If we can get this Iran deal uh, back, it'd be a miracle, but if we could get it back in place and we open up Iran, that gives the democratic forces time to grow. So I don't expect a revolution now, but in the long run, if Iran opens up, I think a return to democracy is almost inevitable. Joe, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Dr. Cornell Brooks is with us explaining why now is the time to honor a woman named Callie G. House. Callie House is someone who, more than 100 years ago, started the conversation about reparations. Dr. Brooks, thanks for being with us. It's good to be with you, Jeff, as always. This is, this is really interesting. Tell us about Callie G. House. So if you can imagine at the sunset, the, the sunset years of the Civil War, a little girl, an African-American girl, is born in Murfreesboro. Uh, she's born in the closing uh, days, the closing years of the Civil War. Uh, she grows up uh, near Nashville. She marries and becomes a mother of five children. And Callie House, near the end of the 1800s, hears about an effort to compensate people who were enslaved. As you well know, when African Americans heard news of the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment formally freeing enslaved people, they were destitute. They were impoverished. People were essentially freed to be homeless, freed to be destitute, freed to literally be at the um, at the mercy of those who formerly enslaved them. And so Callie G. House, who uh, was not uh, a lawyer, not a legislator, but a laundress, a washerwoman, uh, a widow, and uh, she subsequently lost her husband and uh, was a widow and a mother of five children, she bands together with a group of African Americans to seek reparation or compensation for formerly enslaved people. Why? Because these were people who were growing older, who had spent the the best part of their lives working for others for no compensation at all. So she creates an organization uh, for ex-slaves that numbered in the hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, with chapters all across the country, and dues-paying members. So, Jeff, the, the thing that I want to lift up here is well before Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, well before Randall Robinson, well before uh, Dr. William Darity, well before Dr. King spoke on the mall in Washington about 
the United States owing African Americans a check. Kelly House, this laundress, this washerwoman, this woman who was formerly uh, unlettered but incredibly erudite and uh, a master organizer, creates an organization before the NAACP, before the Urban League, uh, that numbered in hundreds of thousands where she supported reparations legislation in Congress. She filed the first uh, federal uh, reparations lawsuit uh, that would reach uh, African Americans all across the country. So she is quite literally the foremother of the reparations movement that we see, not just in the United States, but literally around the world. It, it really is an incredible story when you think about it, when you think about when she was doing this. Nowadays, I, I, you know, when I'm having discussions about the current uh, political atmosphere, <clears throat> you know, I talk about people who either lack courage or have courage. And I'm always looking for the people who have courage, who stand up for what what's right despite what the popular perception uh, in some groups uh, is at that time. And I say that because think about Callie G. House. More than a hundred years ago, going around telling black folks, hey, we should get reparations. And obviously, word of her message spreading to white communities, white politicians who are, you know, at that time, uh, certainly the majority of whom were likely, <laughs> they didn't like that idea whatsoever. What kind of courage does that take at that time? And what kind of uh, blowback, if you will, was there for her? Tremendous, uh, tremendous blowback. You know, the pollster, uh, Cornell Belcher, spoke about, uh, spoke in the wake of President Barack Obama's election that there was not a backlash, but a blacklash. Callie G. House experienced a blacklash. So in other words, when she created the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association, when she created this grassroots reparations organization, it precipitated a response from the federal government. President McKinley accused her of fraud. The federal government targeted her, investigated her, uh, accused her of essentially engaging in fraud because she used the mail system to reach out to members all across the United States in the same way that uh, chambers of commerce, uh, fraternities, sororities, um, churches, mosques, and synagogues, uh, civic organizations use the mail to reach out to their members. She did so. But they accused her of fraud because they said that it is obvious that black people don't deserve and will not receive reparations. For you to solicit membership in an organization to seek reparations must mean that you engaged in fraud. And so they accused her of fraud, the president of the United States, the Postal Service investigated her, charged her with a crime. She was convicted by an all-white, all-male jury and sentenced to a year in federal prison. And she served this time in prison. Now, we want to be clear about this. She was guilty of no crime. And no less a figure than the eminent historian Mary Frances Berry wrote a phenomenal book called My Face is Black is True about Callie G. House. And in that book, she reveals that the federal government did not prosecute Callie House because she was guilty. They prosecuted her because she was perceived to be dangerous. And in the face of all of that, she didn't give up. She organized, she 
wrote letters to um, members of Congress. She wrote letters to the pension board. So in other words, what, what I'm saying to you is she demonstrate, demonstrated an incredible measure of, of courage. Um, the better part of a century later, President John F. Kennedy wrote a book, Profiles in Courage. Here we have a profile in courage of a heroine who is unsung, undersung, underappreciated, uh, but in 2022, no, nevertheless, is incredibly inspiring. But just be clear about this. How would you, would, let me put this way, how would you feel, how would our listeners feel if they risk their lives, they risk their livelihoods, they risk the well-being of their children in service of a cause that would make America greater? One of her children, one of her sons, was also charged. Her family was under threat. She wasn't a rich person. She wasn't a billionaire. Uh, she wasn't uh, wealthy. She didn't have a trust fund. She was a washerwoman, a laundress. And her livelihood uh, was threatened because of her, essentially her belief in this country. One last point I'll, I'll make here is she wasn't guilty of a crime. The only thing she was guilty of was that she placed her hope in the Congress, the conscience, and the citizenry of this country. And in fact, she wrote a letter to the federal government essentially saying, I'm not guilty of a crime. Every citizen is entitled to petition Congress to uh, support just legislation. So she showed tremendous courage. She certainly did. And, you know, sadly, a lot of people do not know her story. Um, I have to admit that before you brought this to my attention, I didn't know her story. But what you want, and you're among a group of people who is seeking a presidential posthumous pardon for her. Why now? Well, let us, let us note this. It's more than a century since she was convicted of a crime she didn't commit. We are in a time in which there's a global reparations movement. We are in a moment in which Black women's voices uh, are being heard. And so this is the perfect time to seek justice, a pardon for a woman who was wrongfully convicted, the perfect time to exonerate a history, and the perfect time to vindicate a legacy. So what we're doing today is literally submitting a petition to the White House and the Pardon Office of the United States Justice Department seeking a presidential posthumous pardon from President Joseph R. Biden. And as you know, under the Constitution, the president has a virtually unfettered, unlimited ability to pardon people who've been convicted of federal crimes. And President Biden I would note this, has a great many hard and important decisions to make. This is an easy and important decision to make. So today we uh, announce this petition, submit this petition. And when I say we, what I mean is, well, I had this idea to seek a, a, a pardon about a year ago. Um, I didn't do this uh, by, by any means uh, alone. I teach a class at the Harvard Kennedy School on social justice advocacy. My students work with the National Congress of Black Women, founded by Coretta Scott King, founded by Shirley Chisholm, founded by Eleanor Holmes Norton. Uh, my students also work with the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, whose origins go back to Ida B. Wells, the anti-lynching crusader. So these two black women's organizations have agreed to advocate for uh, Callie G. House uh, in terms of a pardon. We then reached out to an extraordinary criminal law attorney um, who is a professor at the Harvard Law School uh, in the person of Ronald Sullivan. He drafted the petition. So we have a petition that goes to the White House. We have these legacy black women's organizations who are going to advocate uh, for this uh, petition, this uh, pardon. 
and we have students. And I want to, Jeff, I want to emphasize this. Here we have young people. And when I mean uh, young people, I mean students at the Harvard Kennedy School, students from the Divinity School, students from Harvard College, all kinds of students who come together to take the lessons that they learn in the academy and literally take those lessons and apply them on the uh, battlefield of justice. Uh, so that's what we're doing uh, today in terms of uh, this pardon petition. And we're hopeful. Um, we're hopeful. And I'd love to have you and everybody listening to the program uh, join us uh, in the White House when uh, President uh, Biden si signs this uh, pardon petition, because I, I believe he will. Yeah, you're you're optimistic, and you know I can understand your optimism. But if I'm in the White House advising this president and preparing him for a press conference, should he consider this pardon? I would say, Mr. President, prepare for this question. Where what is your stance on reparations? Doesn't this pardon? suggests that you are endorsing the idea of reparations. That's a thorny issue uh, for a president heading into midterm elections, eventually heading into what appears to be another run for the White House in 2024. Where does this president, in your view, stand on reparations? Has he, you know, as this issue has bubbled up across the country, we really haven't heard that much from President Biden on reparations. Here's what I, if I were an advisor to the president, I would counsel the president uh, along these lines. Because President Biden supported the idea of a reparations commission as a candidate, because the, the president is a global world leader who leads in the midst of a global reparations movement. What better way to take a step toward a robust conversation about reparations and the realization of reparations than to start with the foremother of reparations and to start with literally extending to her a pardon exonerating a history and vindicating a legacy. So in other words, the modern civil rights movement started with Rosa Parks, who came to be known as the mother of the civil rights movement. It started with the story of a black woman, a, the struggle of a black woman. Movements begin with stories. And this is an important story to lift up. What better way to explain to America and to begin a robust conversation and realization of reparations than to simply start with the story of a woman who literally wrote her government and said, I created an organization to care for sick and elderly, formerly enslaved people. That's incontestably, indisputably good. Then she goes on to say, and we're also seeking compensation for those who are formerly uh, enslaved. What better way to have this conversation than to lift up a heroine who used the tools of democracy to try to bring about change and who was unjustly, wrongfully convicted? And so the president has unfettered, virtually unlimited pardon power. He could do this with the stroke of a pen. And in so doing, begin a conversation across the country that would ed educate the citizenry, um, I believe, help people wrap their minds and their hearts around the fact that we have to have this conversation. We need this commission. We ultimately uh, need reparations in terms of bringing about a real racial healing. But it can start. It can start with uh, the telling of a story and the writing of a just ending. Right? So, Jeff, I, I'm, the reason why I'm not pessimistic is because the logic, the reasoning, the rationale behind the granting of a pardon um, is also the, the, the logic, the reasoning, the rationale behind the necessity 
of having this discussion. But listen, we 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 don't have to have a hundred conversations on the economics of reparations uh, to start with this pardon, right? We don't have to end with a pardon. We most certainly don't. But I think it's um, it's something that should be done. And as president, he can do it. Well, yeah, he he could do it. Um, but it just it just raises so many other issues, and you know I wanted to ask you um, because obviously you've thought about this issue, you've you've had discussions uh, at length about reparations, and for people who are listening to this discussion, I want to know what you think reparations in this day and age should look like. Should they look like Callie House was proposing them to be more than 100 years ago, or should they be an investment in a community, as we're seeing in some select cities across the country? Reparations is not handing out a check to people, but it's about investing in communities. How do you think it should look if it happens? Yes. Well, um, I'll answer the question in terms of when it happens. Here's what I would know. Any student of American history has to appreciate the fact that the racial harms visited upon black people, uh, the descendants of enslaved people, as well as those who have, or black people who come to this country um, from other uh, places who've experienced Jim Crow discrimination. There are a variety of racial harms, employment harms, housing harms, uh, policing harms, voting harms. Where you have a variety of harms, you should have a variety of responses. In the same way, if you go to a hospital and you have a number of illnesses or conditions, physicians will treat you with a variety of treatments. So reparations can look like investment in communities. Reparations could also look like uh, direct um, cash payments, particularly where people have suffered discrete economic harms. In other words, there are black people in this country whose land was taken. Right? Um, people who were denied, American veterans, black veterans, who were denied housing benefits and education benefits. And there's no, and there's no debate about that. No debate. Um, so the point being here is, Reparations can take a variety of forms, but let us not suffer what Martin Luther King called the paralysis of analysis, right? We are smart people. One of the things that I'll note here is I'm doing a paper with a colleague who's a, uh, a world-class economist uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School, Linda Bilmes, and we're looking at the economics of reparations. One of the things we, we've come to appreciate, come to discover is we engage in reparations all the time in this country. We just don't call it that. And we engage in what we call repertory compensation for a whole variety of groups who suffered particular harms. But, but Jeff, what I think is really, really important here is before you get to the numbers, you have to start with the people, right? There's no federal program where we cut checks, made investments without starting with people. And when you start with people, you have to start with the story. And I believe that we need the statistics, we need the best analysis, we need the best lawyers, we need the best economists, we need a variety of responses to uh, the racial harms black people have suffered. But I think it's very, very powerful to help Americans understand why we need reparations. And um, a story about the foremother reparations is incredibly important and a pardon is incredibly important. Dr. Cornell Brooks, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on ACF. Honored, honored to be with you. Let's welcome back Dahlia Lithwick, one of the nation's foremost legal commentators. And of course, one of our favorite, if not our favorite legal commentator, on ACF. She's out with a new book. It's called Lady Justice, 
Dahlia, welcome back. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. And you don't have to play favorites. All of the Supreme Court reporters are equally wonderful. Yes, they're all great. (laughs) Wink, wink. But you are my favorite. So, okay. Let's talk about this book. Uh, When I wrote my two books, I just, I, I felt compelled to put all this stuff on paper. What I didn't know was how much of my life it would consume. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I felt better getting that off my chest, but boy, did that take over my life. What prompted you to write Lady Justice? You just had so much more to say. I think... I mean, first of all, COVID will really help. Like when you're locked in your basement and you can't go anywhere for a year and a half, it is amazing what you can accomplish. So I was lucky in a way that you maybe weren't because I was not going anywhere and it was either that or, you know, crochet things. So, but I I think what I wanted to accomplish was first of all, lifting up these amazing women lawyers, some of whom got famous, some of whom really didn't but should be famous, lifting up these stories of amazing court cases, amazing organizing efforts, incredible campaigns uh, to register and energize voters, all of which was done by women using the tools of the law. And so I guess ultimately... What I wanted to do was say that it's very easy in particularly these polarized moments to think that the law is just, you know, a a weapon of choice for political actors, that there's no there there. We should give up on the courts. We should give up on the law. We should give up on the Constitution. And after a 20-decade career covering the courts, my feeling is the opposite. My feeling is that the law is kind of amazing. This book, in some sense, is a love letter to the law and the rule of law and to lawyers who go into court and enforce the law. I don't think it's time to give up on the power and the authority of the legal system or on the aspirations of the Constitution. And I wanted to just remind people, particularly people who are feeling really destabilized by last term at the court, by, you know, questions about gun rights and reproductive freedoms and the powers of the EPA to regulate the environment, that law is not the problem. Lawlessness is the problem and law might be the solution. And did you... It sounds like, based on what you just outlined there, that you started writing this before SCOTUS' decision on Roe v. Wade. Yes, this was uh, a project I really started in 2017. In some sense, I had been covering a lot of the stories I tell in the book. I profile a bunch of different women lawyers and how they were really bolstering the rule of law, bolstering institutions uh, during the Trump years and beyond. And so I talk about Sally Yates, for instance, who was the acting attorney general who refused to enforce what she thought was an unconstitutional and discriminatory um, travel ban. I talk about Roberta Kaplan. She is the lawyer who brought the white supremacists and Nazis who marched in Charlottesville in 2017, brought them to trial in a civil court uh, you know, in a, in a case that only just finished in 2021, but got a $26 million judgment against those uh, white supremacists. So I just wanted to tell some of these stories are going to be really familiar to readers. You know, people remember the travel ban. They remember, um, you know, Stacey Abrams uh, uh, registering voters in Georgia in 2020. But some of the stories were a little bit buried. Some of them are a bit obscure. But But each of them is a story, again, either from the four years of um, the the former president, some of them go on into um, our our modern times post-2020. But I think what I just wanted to do was lift up time and time again stories of some of the unsung attorneys who kind of turned on a dime, changed their lives, changed their careers, changed their plan just to fight for and to bolster legal systems, constitutional protections. So yes, it preceded Dobbs, but in a sense, 
it previewed the women who are now out on the streets, say in Michigan, getting signatures to put abortion on the ballot, the women in Kansas who showed up to vote to make sure that reproductive freedom was protected in Kansas. So I guess in a sense, if it's a love story, it's a love story to women past and future and the organizing they do. Well, it is really interesting as I uh, look over some of the highlights of the book, some of the many highlights of the book. Um, I'm wondering if if you see that there has been a sea change in the real power brokers, the real legal power brokers in this country. Are they now predominantly women? I don't think I would go that far. I think that if you look at Michigan, you know, you can look at the governor, the attorney general, the secretary of state. I mean, there are some prodigiously talented women, the vice president, you know, former secretary of state, Hillary Clinton. I mean, there are certainly many, many women who have done what Stacey Abrams said and just stepped into the breach uh, to become sort of wizards of democracy. I don't want to say predominantly, but I think I do want to say that in light of the fact that we've seen some real revanchist black backsliding in the last few years, not just uh, around women, but around uh, LGBTQ communities, around immigrants, uh, which we're now seeing uh, at the borders, I think that women have, and this is my thing that I posit as the central theory of the book, is that women actually have a kind of unique and special relationship with the law partly because it had been denied them so long, they really had to claw out power from a constitution that gave them none. And so I think women and people of color and minorities and Native Americans really understand that they live on this kind of knife edge between having the law be the instrument that gave them equality, that gave them dignity, that gave them rights and freedom, but that also just in the blink of an eye that that can be taken away and that you can lose all those rights and freedoms and privileges that you fought so hard for. And so to me, I think one of the reasons that women surged into these leadership roles, as you ask, particularly um, after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, after the Women's March and Donald Trump, even after Anita Hill's testimony, is that I think that women have in their bones that sense of vulnerability, that if we don't fight for the law, the law might just be weaponized against us one day, almost like an ancient memory of when the law was weaponized against women. And so I think it does galvanize them to even some of the lawyers that I profile did this unwillingly. They didn't think they were up to the job. They hadn't prepared. But every one of them at some point or other says, you know what? No one was doing this work. So I just stepped in. And I think you're right. I think we're seeing that at school boards, election officials around the country, women just saying, someone's better better step in and fix this. Oh, I guess it's me. That's right. There's always... Uh, yeah, what you just said reminds me of the, those times around, frankly, around my own household when, you know, someone says, you know, somebody needs to clean that up and nobody wants the job. But, you know, in 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 light of what you write, there are people and we've talked about this in other segments of this uh, episode of uh, America Change Forever Courage. The kind of courage it takes for people, um, and they can be from any walk of life, to stand up and to take a stand. And in this case, you're highlighting the heroism of of, uh, these accomplished attorneys in all these cases. Uh, That's right, Jeff. And I think another thing that I feel very strongly about is that we have become a little habituated to hero worship, right? I mean, you and I have talked before about how 
for a long time, we just thought, you know, oh, Robert Mueller will fix this or, oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg will fix this. Someone was always going to come along and sort democracy out for us. And I think one of the lessons I really learned over the last 10 years or so, and certainly in doing these profiles for the book, is that the heroes are everywhere around us. <laughs> the heroes are us. And that this story we tell ourselves about some cowboy riding in in a white hat and just sorting out, you know, all the bits of democracy that aren't working. It's just not a very useful story. And I begin the book talking about Polly Murray, who was this iconic civil rights architect, a woman who not only kind of carved what is modern gender equality doctrine, but also modern racial equality doctrine out of the rock face of the 14th Amendment and gets no credit. Almost nobody knows about her. And folks should definitely watch um, the documentary. My name is Polly Murray. It's extraordinary. But for me, Polly Murray becomes a template for exactly the thing you are saying, which is someone's got to clean this up. I guess it's me. I might not be in all the history books. People might not buy the mug and the tote bag and they might not know my name. But I think that Democracy is kind of a ground up proposition. It's from the ground up that we build freedom and trust and dignity and equality. And so I start the book with Polly Murray for exactly the reason you just posited, because I am absolutely certain that Polly Murray is everywhere and kind of Lady Justice is everywhere. We just have to turn around to the people who have done this and say thank you. Indeed. Let's let's talk about Stacey Abrams. I'm sure that she has t-shirts and mugs and especially now that she's on the ballot again for governor in the state of Georgia. And as we speak, she's down in the polls. Is her legacy tarnished if she doesn't win uh, this race for governor the second time around? I don't think so, because I think Stacey Abrams is quintessentially an emblem of what you and I just said, which is she didn't want to be a brand. She didn't want to be on the mugs and the t-shirts. She has been offered in the years since her first gubernatorial run, if she wanted to be on the Supreme Court, if she wanted to be the vice president uh, alongside Biden, she turned every one of these big grand offers to become larger than life and instead said, no, this is my work. My work is in Georgia and it is registering every single voter so that the power of the voter, so that one person, one vote has meaning and force. So for me, I think Stacey Abrams is almost the quintessential example of someone who could have vaunted to greater and greater fame, but instead chose to continue to the, do the work she's been doing for years and years and years, even before she became a household name, which is ensure that voter suppression is not allowed to happen, to ensure that people are registered and they're aware uh, that their ballot might be in peril around the country and to ensure that quite simply the voice of the people is heard on election day. So for me, whether she wins or loses is partly a systems question. And that's what her chapter is about is, you know, how elections are being distorted so that the majority will does not always manifest on the ballot. But I think for me more urgently, Stacey Abrams is an absolute example of someone who saw a task for herself and given all the temptations to do other things, arguably bigger things, arguably things that would have given her fame, said, no, I stay in Georgia. I make sure people are registered to vote. And on election day, I make sure their vote is counted. Who do you think, or let me ask it this way, is, is, is this book, is it... You know, if, if you're on the far right, uh, not the far right, but if you're, let's say, right of center, is this the kind of book that you would want to read? Or is it just, you know, is there a focus on Donald Trump and, and in their view, bashing Donald Trump? Who is the audience for this book? I mean, I, I like to think this book is not 
about Donald Trump or bashing Donald Trump. I think it is really, as I said, a book about the law and why we need the law. And I am not naive. I am well aware that, you know, Donald Trump right now is saying that the entire FBI, the Justice Department, uh, you know, everybody is involved in an elaborate witch hunt uh, to get him. But that destabilizing of public trust, not just in the law itself, but in institutions, is the thing that worries me. And so I will stipulate now and forever that if you are you know, the part of the population that thinks that Donald Trump is above the law, that he can do no wrong, uh, that it's okay to take classified documents and keep them and do, you know, heaven knows what, despite uh, the many, many federal statutes that preclude that, you're not going to like this book. But I think if you believe that constitutional democracy cannot exist and thrive unless everyone is equal under the law, unless presidents and drug dealers alike are subject to the force of law and the force of, uh, you know, investigation and prosecution and, yes, incarceration if you have broken the law, then I think this is a book that says the law is bigger than all of us. And it is a book that says whether you're on the political right or on the political left, that if you are not fighting for the law and the rule of law, the institutions of justice, including the Justice Department, including the FBI, then you are really kind of laying the tracks for what I think is dangerous chaos, is dangerous nihilism. And I just don't like this track that we are on, where people are being rewarded for vigilantism, they're being told, go out and get a gun and threaten elections officials, go out and get a gun and make sure that abortion providers uh, are not doing what you think is unlawful. I just think that notion that everybody can decide the law for themselves and then enforce it for themselves is absolutely chilling. And so I am a huge, I often tell people, if you think I'm a radical, I'm still the most small C conservative radical you're ever going to meet. Because in the end of the day, I just believe in systems and institutions. And I really, really am very worried that the law is not a thing that everyone gets to decide for themselves and enforce for themselves at the point of a gun. Dahlia Lithwick. The book is Lady Justice. Always a pleasure. It's always a treat to be with you. And thank you so much for giving me a little time to talk about my my brand new baby, this book that, uh, as you said, four years gestating. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. And don't forget that you can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. 
Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.